We're going to begin a new series this morning, and I think we'll go about four weeks with this one on uh, uh, upgrading your life, upgrading your Christian life. Uh, not long ago, I used an example of the difference between flying coach and first class, and uh, it began a thought process in me about how often we have opportunities for upgrades and we don't take them. Uh, we'll, we'll take the cheap seats, but somebody comes to us and says, you know, as you're checking into this hotel, we can get you a better hotel room for the same price. Now, wouldn't it be unreasonable for somebody to say, no, I'll just stay in the worst room. I, I don't want the better room. Or you can go to a car rental place and they say, well, you, you rented a compact, but we don't have any compacts left. We do have one luxury car. And for you to walk away and say, well, you know what, I'm just going to go somewhere else. Now, that would be crazy. But at the same time, often as believers, we see what God has offered us in Christ, that abundant life that he has offered us, and we walk away from it or we ignore it or we think, well, mine's okay. There are a lot of people that when the camera hits them on some of these churches, you think they're visiting the morgue not worshiping at church. I mean, they look sour and glum. And I'm thinking if I was an old boy sitting around channel surfing, trying to find, you know, the hunting and fishing show, and I ran across that TV broadcast, the first thing I would say is, that's another reason why I don't go to church. Because they don't look like it's made any difference in them. They, they don't look any different than me. They look as miserable as I look. They seem as sad as I am. They look as sorry as I look. So why, why should I get up and go to that? Now, I'm not saying we ought, to, we ought to jump the pews and roll down the aisles. I am saying that the Christian life ought to in, be enthusiastic. That's right. And it ought to be powerful. And it ought to, there ought to be energy to it. it. It should not be a glum and a ho-hum. It, it should be the joy that God puts in our hearts. Uh, the choir just sang about that city and about heaven. You know, we don't talk much about heaven anymore because we're, we're so bound to this earth. And all it takes is turning on the news one day and everything that you put your hope in is gone because we're so bound to this earth. Nobody in heaven wishes they were back here today. Not anybody. And we ought to live in such a way that when we get to heaven, when we see the Lord face to face, it's not like we're in a, we're in a different culture shock and, and we don't know what happened to us because it's so alien to us because we've not walked in the fullness of all that God has for us in our life. And so we're going to look at uh, the first chapter of Colossians today and then I'm going to read you a few verses out of Galatians. Now, if you're a new believer... And, and you're not familiar with the New Testament, when you get to Paul's writings in the book of Romans and in First and Second Corinthians, when you get to his short letters, the epistles, this is the way you remember them, General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So Colossians is the first one of the smaller epistles, and then Colossians is at the end. So we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, and I want you to see where these people are that Paul is writing to. Remember, this is a letter to a church, to a body of believers, folks just like us. They've come from all walks of life. They've come from every tribe and every tongue. 
They are new believers. They are trying to understand what it means to be saved and to live the Christian life. And Paul says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. That's a key phrase. This gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. It's not static. It's not stagnant. Even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, let me give you several things here. First of all, let's look at where they are spiritually. Spiritually, they are saints and they are in Christ. So this, this is their location spiritually. So these believers are saints set apart. Doesn't mean that they've been pronounced saint by a church. All of us who know Christ are saints. It just means that we've been set apart. Practically, they were faithful. These saints were not just saints in theory, but practically they were faithful to Christ. Their love for God was producing loyalty in them. You see, this is how you hold a marriage together. This is how you hold a church together. This is how you hold a family together. Love produces loyalty. That's faith working itself out. Now, Galatians 6 and verse 10, just for a point of reference, he said, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So Paul is writing this letter and he's saying that without an upgrade in our attitudes and our actions, there won't be an upgrade that's visible to other people. We, we have to change the way we think in our being faithful in our being in Christ. And then sociologically, they were the brethren. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. These people were acting like a family. They had been adopted into God's family, and, and they were behaving and acting like a family should behave and act. Geographically, they were in Colossae. Today, we would say we're in southwest Georgia. These people lived in a certain location, and they had been set apart by God, saved and set apart to function at a higher level than the people in the society around them. Now, that's important, because if the gospel is going to be good news, it has to be news that is broadcast through our lives that says to a world that doesn't know the gospel or hasn't responded to the gospel, they are living at a level higher than I'm living at. And that has nothing to do with economics. It has nothing to do with the car or the house we have or anything like that. It has to do with our attitude about life Amen. and about what God has done for us and us exhibiting that, showing that off, to this world to say, this is what Christ can do in your life. And so the first thing is, uh, the Bible assumes victory. The Bible assumes victory. Now here's what that means. The Bible will admit defeat. 
but it never assumes it. The Bible was not written to tell you how to live a defeated life. The Bible was written to tell you how to live a victorious life. The Bible is not written to people who become perfect and never sin. It's written to people who know and are aware that sometimes they stumble, they fall, they make mistakes, they blow it, they make unwise decisions, they they listen to wrong counsel, and they need to get back on track. The Bible knows that we're going to do that. God gave his word to people who are sinners saved by grace. But the Bible was not written to us for us to stay in that defeated condition but for us to learn how to live as overcomers. Here's the problem. Today, we are so consumed with gimmicks that we miss God. And so obsessed with methodology that we miss what it means to have an intimate relationship with the Master. Somewhere today... As I'm speaking, somewhere in this 24-hour day, there are going to be believers hiding out in a house church in China, worshiping Christ, avoiding the government. Somewhere today, there are going to be believers in Iraq and Iran who risk being murdered as they leave church who are meeting in a secluded area outside of a town or a city to worship and to celebrate what Christ has done for them. Somewhere inside of countries where persecution is abounding, there are believers who are joyous and exuberant, excited about their faith, willing to risk their lives to gather to worship, and they don't have lights, and they don't have sound, and they don't have a nice facility, and they don't have a parking lot. All they've got is God. And I would submit to you that they are living an upgraded life that the average American church member knows nothing about. Because we've misinterpreted comfort as abundance. And being comfortable is not what the Bible is about. Being committed to Christ and walking in the joy of an overcoming faith is what God has given his word to us to do. And so the key is found in a full understanding, verse 5, of the gospel, the word of truth. Notice that he says, which you have previously heard. Now, can I tell you something? Because we're, we're always changing. I, I mean, everybody on Verizon is happy that the iPhone is coming to Verizon. Uh, you, you would think that it was one of the signs of the end times and the second coming. Listen to me. Nothing important has changed. Just stuff changes. Nothing important has changed. What's important? There comes a day when you're born and there's a day when you die. And what you do with Jesus Christ before the day you die is the essential important thing in life. 
And that doesn't change based on technology or advancements in society. Nothing important has changed. Paul says the, the thing that you previously heard is still good. You, you see, I remember going to visit my, my mom's parents between New Hebron and Silver Springs, Mississippi, in a little hole in a wall called Grange. And the only thing in Grange was five families in my grandparents' grocery store. And I remember watching my grandmother after we would eat lunch, and she would insist that we take a nap. When we would lay down to take a nap, I remember my grandmother taking out her worn-out Bible and sitting in a rocking chair and reading her Bible every afternoon until she finally fell asleep. And you know, nothing important has changed. They didn't have air conditioning. I have air conditioning. I can go set the thermostat to the temperature that I want it to be. But if I don't sit down and spend time in this word, then I can be comfortable, but I could be living a second-class life. Not living according to the way God wants me to live. In fact, Paul said there, there are going to be always people that are trying to get you on a different gospel. That's what he says in the book of Galatians. He said there is no different gospel. The gospel begins and ends in Jesus Christ. There, there's nothing beyond him. There's nothing greater than him. And, and the gospel is Christ getting in us and filling us to the point that he comes out of us. And people see the Christ in us coming out of us. And they look and they say, I don't know what you've got, but I I want what you've got. It's not them looking at us and saying, there's another reason why I shouldn't go to church. It is us living a distinctive life that has clearly been upgraded from what is normal. In fact, Vance Havner said that, that we have become so subnormal that when somebody lives the normal Christian life, they look abnormal to the rest of us. And isn't that the case? I mean, you meet somebody that gets excited about the Lord, and, and all of a sudden they make you feel uncomfortable because they're excited. You know you're supposed to be excited, but after all, let's not go overboard with this thing. After all, religion should have a calming effect. Hey, if you've been raised from death unto life, it ought to have an exciting effect Amen. on your life. And we should never be people that folks could look at us and say, well, they got saved, but they got over it. We should never get over what God has done for us in Christ, that he saved us, that he forgives us. The gospel is Jesus, and Jesus is the gospel. John 12, 32, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Now, all does not mean that everybody's going to be saved. That's what the universalists believe. You know, you, you see politicians and other people and, and, you know, anybody that dies, they go to heaven. That's not the way it works. Here's what all means, and you should write this down. All is not all without exception, but it is all without distinction. In other words, God says all, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, there will be people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. That's what we read in Revelation. That will be in heaven because they've given their hearts and their lives to Jesus Christ. God doesn't say just this group of people or this color of people or, or this class of people. All from all of those, God will reach into every segment of society and save the lost and touch their lives. 
The Bible's a Jesus book. It tells us about Jesus. And if you want to live an upgraded life, the first thing to do is to get in the Word. Now, let me just give you a little background here because here's what you see in the Bible. In the Old Testament, you see the preparation for His coming. The preparation for His coming. Everything in the Old Testament is written historically, but it is written to point you to one that is coming to redeem. From the fall of Adam and Eve and the covering of them and their nakedness because they realized they were naked and were afraid in the presence of God. God slew an animal. God slew a lamb. And from that point on, everything in the Old Testament, you find Jesus in every chapter, on every page, in every family. You see a looking for and a longing for the preparation of the coming of Christ. In the Gospels, the presentation. He's here. That's what John said. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Christ is presented to us in Acts, the proclamation. And the proclamation is of his grace and of his power to change lives. Here's Simon Peter, a failure who blows it, who sticks his foot in his mouth, and all of a sudden he becomes a powerful preacher of the gospel, and people that were hiding and afraid at the crucifixion, all of a sudden they burst out of the walls and they go everywhere and spread the gospel around the known world. It's the proclamation of him. In the epistles, there's the personification of Christ. For me to live, Paul said, is Christ. Paul said, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Christ personified. How do people know who Jesus is? They're supposed to know by looking at us. You see, we can't walk Jesus out on this stage and say, here's Jesus. This is what he looks like. But what's supposed to happen is when they see us, they see such a radical transformation in our lives that they say, well, I don't know what Jesus looks like, but if he looks like that person, then that must be what I need. Because our lives are so distinctively different. And then there's revelation, which is the preeminence of Christ. The lamb has overcome. Here's the key. He won you win. Because he won, you win. Because he wasn't defeated, because he wasn't overcome, you don't have to live a defeated life, and you don't have to be overcome by the world and the flesh and the devil. So there's salvation that leads to sanctification. Look at these verses. Acts chapter 8, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Philip didn't preach himself. He didn't preach his denomination. He didn't preach his preferences. He preached Jesus. And we can talk about a lot of things and not change people's lives. But Jesus is the one that changes people's lives. Look at this verse, Luke chapter 24 and verse 44. Now he, that being Jesus, said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. There's the preparation, the presentation leading up to the proclamation. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Can I tell you who upgraded people are? Upgraded people are are people who take that person of Jesus Christ and say, Lord, take over. Run my life. 
rule my life, control my mind, guide my decision-making. Because they understand that when they get the Word of God in them, that the Word of God begins to influence how they act and think and react. Secondly, Christ is the key to victory. He's the key to victory. Now here's a thought that you need to kind of etch down somewhere. A lessened faith will produce a diminishing Christ. A lessened faith will produce a diminishing Christ. In other words, if you lessen the importance of the scriptures in your life, you will ultimately lessen the importance of the Savior in your life. And he'll become an add-on, an addition, an option instead of your life. Instead of the one that brings you into all that you have for him. Now, when Paul prays, and we don't have time to look at this prayer today, but I want you to see, beginning in verse 9, Paul says, I'm praying for you. Now, there's three ways that you can pray this prayer, okay? First of all, you can pray it as a pastor's prayer. It can be a pastor's prayer or a Sunday school teacher's prayer. Starting this week, 20 families every week are going to get a letter from me. And that letter is going to be given to you this week so that next week I'm going to pray for you and your family by name. And it's going to tell you that you can email me with your prayer request or you can call my office and give me your prayer request. And so, so that you will know that on that week I have not just prayed for you in general or as you have come to mind, I've locked out 20 names of 20 families per week until I go through all 3,000 members of this church to pray for you specifically. Now, if you don't tell me anything, I'm just going to pray for you generally like you pray for everybody else. Journey. Lord, bless those for whom it is our duty to pray. <laughs> or I can pray for you specifically. I would rather pray for you specifically. So it's a pastor's prayer. By the way, it's a parent's prayer. How do these parents pray for these babies that they've just dedicated? This prayer of Paul is a great prayer to pray. If your children grew up to be a living example of Paul's prayer to the Colossians, you would be the most proud parent and grandparent on the planet because of what they would exhibit in their lives. It's also a personal prayer because you shouldn't pray it for others until you've prayed it for yourself. Lord, let these truths in Paul's prayer be true of me, that they would be evident in my life. And so here's the key to winning in life. It's right here. First of all, it is a faith that is not secret, a faith that is not secret. If you want to live an upgraded life, live a faith that is not secret. Secondly, a love that is not half-hearted. A love that is not half-hearted. Now, these are all based on this prayer, Paul. A faith that is not secret, a love that is not half-hearted, and a hope that is not misplaced. A hope that is not misplaced. Our hope is not heaven. Our hope is in heaven, and our hope is Jesus Christ. And so we have a faith, a hope, and a love. You see those phrases over and over again in Paul's writings. And they're important words because they're evidence of the kind of life that God wants us to live. Now look at his prayer, and we're just going to go through this quickly, and I'll give you time to, to study it on your own. First of all, his prayer is that you would know God's will, that you would know God's will. 
God wants you to know his will. His will is not under some bush somewhere and you've got to go searching for it and looking and asking 10 million people what they think God's will is for your life. God wants you to know his will for your life. And so his prayer is that they would know God's will. Secondly, that they would have God's wisdom. That they would have God's wisdom. Now, we, we live in a world where, you know, everybody is offered an opportunity to get an education. And quite frankly, I don't know about you, but I have met some people that are educated beyond their intelligence. They got a lot of education, and some of them have PhDs. But, but you know, they can't open a car door. You know, they got no common sense. But, but his prayer is that you would have God's wisdom. Listen, knowledge is the acquisition of wisdom, but wisdom is the understanding and the ability to know what to do with what you got. It's not just about book learning. It's about how do I apply that to life? Now, here's one of my, just quickly, here's one of my peeves about uh, sometimes what happens to us and guys that go to seminary and, and guys that teach in seminaries, they teach classes on preaching and they've never pastored a church. And when you hear them preach, you know why they've never pastored a church. My, my professor on preaching, I mean, he would have put you asleep telling you that you could get off the rest of the day. And you got people talking about church growth that have never grown a church, about missions that have never done missions. And so it's not just knowing, it's not just rote, repeating things that you've learned. It's knowing what to do with what you've learned. Thirdly, he says that you would walk in God's ways, that you would walk in God's ways, that God's way is the narrow road, not the broad road. God's way is a narrow road, and God's way is defined for us in the Word of God because the Holy Spirit never leads us to walk in a way that is inconsistent with the Word of God. If you want to check and say, well, I believe God's leading me to do this, check it with the Word because God's ways and God's Word always match up. Next, to bear fruit in every good work. To bear fruit in every good work. Let me just give you a reference there, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Now, to bear fruit in every good work. There, sometimes there are people in the Bible that sneak up on you. And this is one that you can read the book of Colossians and miss this guy. You know, you know how you read, let's just be honest, you know how you read the genealogies. You know, you get in certain books in the Old Testament and so-and-so was a father and so-and-so and so-and-so was a father and so-and-so, so-and-so father and so-and-so. And you say, man, I don't even know who my second cousins are. How in the world am I supposed to remember all this stuff? But here's a name that you need to note in Colossians, Epaphras. How did these people know how to live? Paul points to one guy in the church, a faithful minister, a faithful servant, a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, Epaphras. And he says, this guy gives testimony. This guy gives a witness. This guy is an example for you to look at and to follow. And so how do we learn how to win? We learn by looking at people that are winning. Yes, we look to Christ, but we need kind of sometimes flesh and blood examples. I need to see somebody that this is really working in. 
And that ought to be our goal as parents and as grandparents, that, that when our children and our grandchildren look at us, they see that this faith is working in us. It's not just theory. It's not just something we show up on Sunday to do, but it works in us. These Colossian believers saw this in Epaphras, and let me give you five things here. I'm giving you a lot today. Hey, I hadn't preached in a month. Just be glad we're not here at 430. First of all, by hearing, by hearing. That's what you've been doing this morning is hearing. That's what you'll do in Bible study in just a few moments is by hearing. So we learn how to win by hearing, by the testimony of others, by hearing the word preached, by hearing the word taught. Secondly, by understanding, by understanding. That's where knowledge becomes wisdom. We begin to understand God said this for me. And he's given me the wisdom to know how to live out this kind of life. Thirdly, by learning, by constantly growing, by constantly being stretched, by, by never being satisfied. Number four, by believing. By believing. Well, if God said I can have that kind of life, then I believe I can have that kind of life. If God's made that promise, then I believe that promise is good. I believe that I can count on God to stay true to what he said in his word. And then by doing, see, it's not just enough to believe, you have to do. Faith without works is what? Dead. You have to do something about it. You have to step up and stand out. And so uh, uh, let me give you three things here as we look at the saints that have to choose victory. The saints that have to choose victory. Have you ever watched a sports team get behind and just lay down and pack it in and say, we'll play another day. You ever seen that happen? Could happen in the Super Bowl. I mean, one could get so far behind. Hey, you know, just play always next season, always next week, always next this, always next that. Sometimes that happens with teams. Sometimes it happens with churches. But most often it happens with individuals. Get a few tough hits, something blindsides you, something knocks you off balance, and you just kind of run up the flag and say, well, maybe it's not for me. I, I know it works for other people, but you know, maybe it's not for me. Well, you're going to have to choose. And there are three kinds of Christians in this room today. I'm talking to believers right now. There are three kinds of Christians in this room today. Number one, those in whose life Christ is present. Those in whose life Christ is present. Now, if you're a believer, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, Christ is present, but he may be restricted in your life by sin, by apathy, by an attitude of indifference. He, he's present. But you're sitting all the way in the back of the plane or you're riding in the economy car and he's saying, got something better for you. But you're going to have to leave some of that stuff behind. If you want to travel first class, there's some things you're going to have to let go of. So for some of you, Christ is present and that's good. But there's something that's keeping you and you know what it is. I don't know what it is. But there's something that's keeping you from being all God saved you to be. Secondly, there are those in whose life Christ is prominent. He's prominent. I mean, he, 
He means something to you. Your faith means something to you. You value it. You cherish it. Church is a priority. You're spending time praying, and you're in the Word, but you're still not over some hurdle. And typically what that is is there's one area in your life where the devil keeps beating you up. He keeps tripping you up. He keeps causing you to stumble. That's the area where he keeps accusing you and hounding you and defeating you. And and you love the Lord and you sing the songs and you take the notes and, and you're here and you're faithful. But there is just this one thing that just eats at you. Christ is prominent, but he's not Lord yet. Because you've let one thing hold you back. And then there are those in whom Christ is preeminent. Christ is preeminent. He's Lord. You've embraced him for all that he said he would be in your life. You've chosen to give your life fully and wholly to Jesus Christ without reservations, without any hesitation. You, you don't worry about what anybody thinks about you or what, what anybody says. I mean, you're just, you're so tired of life on the edges and riding in the back all the time that you have said, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm going to live the rest of my life moving forward with all that God has for me. You see, you have a choice today. You have a choice about what you're going to major in in college. You have a choice about your career. You have a choice about uh, if you take a job promotion and move to another town. You have a choice about uh, who you're going to marry. You have a choice about a lot of things in life, but you also have a choice today about Jesus. For some of you, for the first time to say, you know, I'm not even in the back of the plane flying coach. I'm not even on the plane. Because I've never trusted Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And today, I want to invite you to come accept a ticket that was bought for you at Calvary. With the blood of Jesus Christ, he paid the price for the ticket for you to get into the family of God. And he, all he calls you to do is to confess that you are a sinner and that you need a Savior, and that you can't save yourself, and you being good hasn't made you any better, and that you need Jesus to come into your heart and save you and change your life. Some of you need to come today and just find a place at this altar and say, Lord, I've been traveling beneath my privileges. Ron Dunn used to put it this way. He said, when the father gave the prodigal the coat and put it on him and said, we're going to throw a party. It was as if the, the father in the story of the prodigal son said, here's my American Express card. Don't leave home without it. God gave him everything that he went somewhere else looking for. And he realized that everything he'd ever been looking for was in the father's house. Not out there in the world. And maybe today you just need to come and just kneel before the Lord and say, Lord, I don't want you to just be present. I don't want you to be prominent. I want you to be preeminent in my life. Thank you for joining us for Path to Truth from Sherwood Baptist Church. That was Michael Katz's first message in his sermon series, Upgrading Your Christian Life. You can order today's message by going to our bookstore at sherwoodbaptist.net slash bookstore. 
You can also send us your prayer requests by going to SherwoodBaptist.net slash prayer. Again, thank you for joining us for Path to Truth.